Welcome to the World Wild Podcast. I'm Miles Irving, and I'll be introducing Fred Gillen in a few minutes. Very excited to have Fred on the podcast. And um, just just by way of kind of leading up, really, to some of the topics we discuss, or maybe even pulling some of the threads together, I wanted to share some ideas which uh, could could be summed up with the line of an Elvis Costello song. And I think, I think we might put a link to this song underneath the um, podcast page. So the, the, the name of the song is My Aim is True. So I reckon that's an archery metaphor. And uh, the guy's talking about um, a lady that he's in love with called Alison. And, um, you know, he's indicating that he's not messing around. He really does uh, want to pursue that genuine relationship with her, I guess. So talking of archery metaphors, there's... A thing that, that perhaps we don't talk about very much these days because it's, it's not such common parlance to talk about, here we go, sinning. So, you know, I don't know if anyone's childhood or background or cultural heritage has much uh, going on around that word. But um, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a biblical scholar on the, on the side. And um, I like to dig around in the, in the uh, original meanings of some of these words. And actually, the, the Greek word for sin is not really what you'd think it's uh it's basically an archery metaphor so the idea is that if you sin your aim is ever so slightly not true so in other words you 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 kind of you're looking at the target but something is getting in there which distorts the aim so that the um the arrow just goes slightly wider the target but um if you think about it, having gone wider the target, you know, it, 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 um, if you were thinking about the, the target, for example, being true north, and you had a compass that was ever so slightly off, then uh, the further you went, the further away from the correct direction of true north you'd be getting. And um, the more I think about it, the more I think that the, the sort of distortions that are going on, which end up leading us away from life, and connection and participation in the biosphere and heart-to-heart connections with other people where we don't hide and we're able to um, really get the sense and, and the, the, the experience of who other people really are, et cetera, et cetera. You know, where it's all going wrong is based, I am going to suggest, in, in a kind of hijacking of our appetites because, you know, another way you could look at it is, is that um, – you know, an aim in in that sense, what we pursue is like a hunger and an appetite. And if you look at the um, the global industrial food system, it is so rife with examples of people's appetite being hijacked, whether it's by the kind of addictive things that we touch on in the podcast today, or, or just by just plain skullduggery of deception, you know, putting flavor chemicals into things um, which, which make you um, kind of... Uh, tap into to a hunger for something that isn't actually in the food. Um, there's a whole book about that called The Dorito Effect, um, which uh, is mentioned because that, that that guy wrote his book kind of in collaboration with Fred Provenza. And um, I'm afraid I can't remember his name, but we, we'll probably have him on the podcast. So there's an example of, of um, just directly an appetite, which is so true in the case of animals and and including human beings, when we are um, in a in a intact relationship, where there's a sort of a relationship of integrity between us and our surroundings, 
we, like all other animals, will know what it is we need to eat and, and we will have a hunger for that and we'll pursue it. But when the appetites are distorted, um, they keep leading us further and further off true north, as it were, and uh, we eat stuff that, that, that uh, isn't good for us. But also, um, and uh, this is actually a, a, a biblical notion in itself, we eat bread that doesn't satisfy. We eat food which um, leaves us still hungry. So I think if we, if, you know, if we take that, just, just that example in itself as a metaphor, you know, to, to eat food that doesn't satisfy is, uh, is, is a really good metaphor for all of the other kind of things which we're doing, like with industrial consumer culture, where we're, you know, seeking, for example, a, a public persona, like some kind of um, public image where people would think a certain thing of us, you know, then, then I'll be happy, then I'll be satisfied, that sort of thing is obviously also leading us far off true north. And, um, you know, then again, whatever it is, the, the um, appetite for possessions, status, I don't know, dysfunctional relationships, all of it, all of it, all of it. It's, it's basically because we, we aim at something else. Um, and, and I suppose the point is, like, how do we, how do we end up correcting that aim? Um, what's the remedy? <laughs> I'm not sure I'm going to be able to map that one out for you in, in, in any kind of uh, um, complete sense. But I guess the thing is to start looking at the bread that does satisfy um, and um, that is pretty much um, a solid theme running out, r- running through the podcast this week with our sort of neurophysiology and um, the, co- the compounds that work in our brain that, that, uh, that get us to seek after things which do make us feel good and, and actually do us good. There we are. I'll, I'll kind of leave that thought to sort of mix in with everything else that's said in the conversation with Fred. And and, and I'll, I'll just introduce Fred now briefly. And uh, the funny thing is the main thing that I would want to say about Fred, apart from he's a, he's a, a very clever guy and very um, interesting guy that's really widely read and, and um, gives me all sorts of brain stimulation every time I speak to him, is Fred is really um, deeply knowledgeable about medicinal mushrooms, which is why it's kind of hilarious. We, we barely even touch on the subject in this podcast. So I should say from the outset, tune in on another occasion very soon when I talk to Fred about that subject. But for some reason, we, we just talked about almost everything but. But, but Fred runs a uh, medicinal mushrooms conference once a year in Wiltshire and be well worth Getting along to that, if if that's something of interest to you, you 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 would learn a lot, um, as as I did the year before last when I attended. And Fred's also also got a background in forestry, which is another thing we don't talk about at all. But there we are. I guess the thing is, um, the thing about these podcasts is is you get to meet the person in the context of this conversation that we have, and and that's the most important thing. We're we're not trying to be like a a library that gives you um, the definitive statement or or Wikipedia or something. We're we're just uh, introducing you to to someone new. And then if you want to know more about them, you can follow that up yourself. Okay, well, that's it. So without further ado, we will get on to the conversation with Fred Gillen. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think we've lost the plot with children's television, really. Um, It's also banal. And uh, funnily enough, I've been talking to uh, Andy. Have you seen what Andy put up on um, the Foraging for Kids thing? He did this thing called Wild News. I think he might be onto something. It, it's quite funny, but we're talking about populating it, actually doing it as a thing, and mm-hmm. and populating it with, with stories from different um, different angles. Yeah, like what's the bit? What? How, how does it work? Well, the first thing he does is he just he just says this is wild news, and he's sitting somewhere, and and then it kind of goes. It's deliberately like as low budget as possible. The first thing, and then it's just yeah. a photograph, a grainy photograph of a duck with a youngster. 
And he goes, yeah, so for the next little while, you're going to see these mother ducks with their babies. And, it, you know, it's, it's just, and then, there's some daffodils. So daffodils, but it's, it's just like a sketch of what could happen. Yeah. But, but I think the idea that, that, that you'd have some wild news, but it would all be done in a kind of slightly wacky, funny way. Yeah. And it ends up with him saying that now the weather, and the weather is supposed to be read by uh, uh, this guy called Greg, but Greg is a cut-out cardboard photograph on a stick. And, yeah. then, and then the map that he's supposed to be using is, uh, is a geological map. Yeah. And he's going, Andy, this, this low-budget stuff, I can't work with this. He said, that's not even a proper map. It's a geological map. I can't do the weather from... Oh, all right then. Okay, I'll just work with what I've got. And it's, it's pretty funny, actually. Um, but I think there might be something in it. You know, we, we, we perhaps could put together, um, you yeah. know, we've got, we've got enough oddballs in, in, uh, in a... Yeah, well, we're all a bunch of oddballs, I think. I think it, it's... Uh, or are we, you know? Are we odd? I don't think we're odd. Well, no, I mean, I, I always do this business with, with, with the people that come on my foraging walks, especially kids. Um, and I say, you know... Do you know that, um, do you know what, well, I ask them where food comes from and, and they give me all sorts of clever answers, but they'll never get the one I'm after, which is that food comes from here. And then I say, well, you know, every other organism just gets food from here. Apart from these weirdos, I don't know if you've seen them around, but they're like these modern humans. <clears throat> they get their food from somewhere else all the time. <clears throat> and it comes in packets on trains in ships and from these funny things called shops, you know. No other, no, total weirdos. No other species behaves like that at all. I said, uh, but a good job. It, good, good thing is, um, you know, it is possible to be normal. So here's yeah. a dandelion. Eat this dandelion. Hey, anybody feeling normal yet? Kids, kids, you feeling a bit more normal, and so on. And then by the end of it, I said, well, you know, you just want to go home, make sure you kind of do something normal every day because it's it's hard work being a weirdo and so on. They'll try and turn it oh. on their heads. Yeah, turn it on its Brilliant. heads. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's true. And, and with adults, because kids think that's funny, especially if they're on a council estate or something, which, but like with adults, a uh, festival, they love it. They're just like, wow, I am normal. They love being told they're normal. Yeah. They do a bit of foraging. <laughs> because we can, yeah, it, 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 it can be a bit of a burden, as you say, uh, or as you indicate, to feel that we're the odd ones out. But we're not the odd ones out in terms of evolution and ecology. Uh, certainly not the odd ones out. We are profoundly normal. We're so yeah. normal it's boring. Yeah, we are. We're the ones who didn't go weird in the first place, kind of thing. It's strange. Or that we accidentally managed to be normal, having grown up in an industrial consumer context. How did that happen? Yeah. Uh, that's a really good point. It's something <laughs> to ponder, isn't it? What is that drive that enables us to? see through that and, and have an instinct that steers us away from that. Well, I've got a bit of a brief from Joel who edits the podcast and he, he tells me I need to get people's story at the beginning a bit more often than I do. Yeah. So could we have your story about how you became a normal normal organism, please, Fred? God, that's a deep one, isn't it? That's a really deep one. Why aren't you weird, Fred? What well, was it about your background? I am weird some of the time. I'm kind of a weird, normal hybrid, I think. Yeah. I think that's how it works. Okay. Um, I had a pretty lucky upbringing, I think, but there is there is an element of something that is encoded into people. And I, I realised this a few years ago. It sounds a bit 
cosmic. But um, I, I had this light bulb moment, and I suddenly remembered that when I was a really small child, the first things that I can remember, the very, very first things that I remember are going out to the garden and stuffing my head into daily rooms, okay, and trying to smell them. And, yeah, and they don't have, a, like, a rosy fragrance, but they have lots of interesting smell. Mm. Um, I remember rubbing the leaves, and I remember there was what I would now describe as a sort of cloying scent coming from the leaves, and I remember seeing right. it wigs in front of my eyes and I also then not must be not that long after that maybe a year or so later because we're talking back into the 70s where kids just went everywhere I, I grew up on a council estate until I was nine years old uh in the middle of a town so all the kids in the street used to play football out in the road I was never a football kid right it didn't appeal so I used to go and walk on my own and uh, I used to rob people's front gardens. I used to steal the seeds from their shrubs and take them home and put them in little manila envelopes, knocking about. So I used to put them in these little brown manila envelopes. And uh, my dad was a bit of a gardener, so in his spare time at that time, because he worked elsewhere, he would tell me what they were. And I'd write them, I'd learn to write them, you know, on the packets. Okay, we'd learn to write the words. So I had all these little packets of seeds. Well, that must have been good to be able to recognise those seeds, just not with the plant, like. Yeah, and it was it was all kinds of stuff, you know. It was Californian lilac, and you know, it was the shrubs that were all the way down the road in people's gardens because kids used to just wander about. We used to take ourselves for a walk for a couple of miles with a few mates. Sure, you did the same at one time, and yeah, you know, and then rock up home five hours later. Um. Kids these days just don't do that, you know. It would be seen in, in our society as extremely dangerous and weird. Well, do. Good. I'm glad. Because I think they, well, inevitably, like, you know, you're their dad. And, yeah, they're probably going to inherit that same normality, hopefully, from yeah. you. So uh, there I was out there. I had a thing that made me explore nature really close up. I always wanted to literally have the details right in front of my face and look at the tiny details and for some reason that you know that tiny micro world was was my sort of big world um i've still got it today i'm still the same you know and i'm still out there collecting things and you know wanting to identify them wanting to understand what makes them tick and what makes them different to other things and so that's something i think is built into me and that's part of my personality i don't think because I'm thinking back to the first things I did out in, in the street, mm. you know, four years old, yeah. five years old, whatever. I don't think that's so much nurture as mm. nature. I think that was an inherent thing. But then, then we were lucky. Well, when I got to nine years old, my dad um, jacked the job he was doing in and he went off to be the head gardener on a, a country estate. And um, we moved there. We had the gardener's cottage, which was attached onto this big old Georgian mansion house. Uh, he got lucky. He landed his, his dream job for a few years. And he was a great head gardener. You know, we had these great houses that grew. Um, we had Victorian grapevines in them, and the trunks on them were would have been big enough to, you know, turn a bowl out of. Mm. Um, the variety we grew was Black Hamburg. And he did everything in a really traditional way. So... 
some people listening to this may be fairly horrified to hear that um, you know for fertilizer every two years because there were two big vines in the, in the grape houses um, you would dig a pit alter, alternating years at the base of the grapevine and bury a whole sheep um, so we had a sheep farm next to us and when they had a sheep that died of natural causes or whatever you know in the spring that sheep would be brought in and uh, buried in this pit and that would be the food for the vines for two years as it decomposed wow um, you know stuff like that so it was old-fashioned old old-fashioned ways um, there was a walled garden where uh, we grew fruit and vegetables for the manor but obviously we grew them for ourselves as well there was an orchard and, uh, and there was also a secret garden there was a hidden garden outside the walled garden there was a little patch that there was kind of no way into it but it's a remnant of, of an earlier garden and you know as kids it was time to find our way into it and we had this secret place to go and hang out and play in. Mm. It was really something special. And I remember one day, um, we had this huge beech tree at the bottom of the garden, which is kind of how I got into mushrooms, because the mushrooms that came up around the beech tree, um, I got poisoned by them when I was 14, which is what led to that whole journey. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, but I remember my dad one day calling me out and saying, I wonder who lived here a long time ago. And I looked at him and he said, because I've found their treasure. Okay. And we went down to that beech tree and he scraped away the earth. And, and it was for real. You know, somebody had dumped something there. God knows what it was. And it might have been to do with a, it didn't even be to do with a funeral urn or something. I don't know. But there was this pile of gemstones. What? All kinds of crystals and gemstones. Um, about an inch deep and about maybe two feet across. And we were scraping away, pulling the soil out and pulling out all these polished crystals. And it was insane. So I had this crystal collection that we dug up at the bottom of the beech tree in the garden, you know, um, all kinds of weird stuff in it. And, but it was a strange place to live. There, there were lots of, lots of really powerful old customs and traditions that were still on the go in a big way back in, in the early 70s, and that was what I grew up with. Where was it again, Fred, sorry? Did you... The village is um, the village where I grew up is called All Cannings. It's about, as the crow flies, it's about a four to five mile walk straight across the hills from here. Right. Um, right. And it's an interesting place, you know, if you're interested in, in social history, because back in, uh, back in the 1830s, when this land went up into rebellion, um, because the threshing machines had been invented and um, the, far, the, the people who worked with horses on the land basically set up a rebellion to go and smash the mechanised farm machinery because it was depriving them of their jobs. So these were Luddites? Or, no. Or, or, no. no. This, this, was, this was called the Swing Riots, this period. Okay. Okay, and um, it was 18... Oh, that was the looms and so on, wasn't it? It was the, it was the weavers. It, it coincided with the weavers to right. some extent overlapped with them and there was a there was a big connection because both the weavers and the horsemen had um unofficial and illegal craftsmen's guilds unlike the guilds of the city of london these these were collectives of workers who either worked in the mills or on the land and they organized themselves um into pockets and conducted this act of rebellion because um basically back in 1832 if you worked on the land you worked with horses we didn't have any tractors, okay? Everything was 
power that required everything we would do by mechanization today was either turn a wheel turned by a river pretty much or it was horses dragging things around the fields and, and pulling vehicles around and this these inventions that were coming about during this industrialization meant that one farm could do a job that it previously had done with 30 horsemen on the land you know with just three or four and so they were losing their income and most of them had places to live that were tied to the farms mm. they lost mm. their livelihood they lost their homes and they were literally migrating to london to try and ply their trade and becoming you know horse-drawn cab drivers and all sorts of things in london but then the people of london turned against them <clears throat> and said they were foreign labor and that they were trying to undercut the people who were members of the guilds of the city of London. So they weren't welcome there either. This weird idea that people from the countryside going into London were considered foreigners and mm. foreign. Um, and so they were disenfranchised completely from society. And um, they set up groups. Uh, in a lot of cases, there was one very famous group called the Waltham Blacks who lived in Waltham Forest. And uh, they were basically the local horsemen and plowmen and also the local, you know, pinkers, tailors, cobblers, nailers, the people who were, who were just being driven into poverty. And they set up their own uh, bands in the woods and lived there separate from their families. And uh, a lot of them were involved with smuggling contraband from the coast. They were smuggling brandy and things like that from ships coming in from the Caribbean. Uh, using the Green Lane network, the Droveway network around the country. So these people became outlaws and they, they were involved with leading the rebellion, essentially, a bit like the Luddites. And mm. they would turn up in public with their faces blacked, wearing rags and tatters, um, like in the Mummers plays that go on, you know, around Christmas today, which has got a link to that tradition. And uh, the Waltham Blacks in particular in, elected a king, in, a, a forest king, who uh, they named after a, a novel um, by a lady called Afra Ben. And the novel's a couple of hundred years earlier. And the, no the novel is the, the tale of King Orinuco. And that's what they named their king, Orinuco. Um, and he was a, an African uh, noble who was taken into slavery and ended up working on the plantations in, um, in the Caribbean. And then he led an uprising. He led a rebellion and led the people out. And, and you can see why they chose this black mm. and they packed <clears throat> faces because they felt their own plight was very similar to the people they were meeting on the ships, the pirate ships that were bringing the brandy for them were people who'd fled slavery to go pirating because it was more right. dangerous. Um, so it's kind of like workers' solidarity, <laughs> inter, inter, international workers' solidarity almost. So much so, this is bonkers, right? So... So, so much so that our government passed an act of parliament called the Black Act, which made it illegal to black one's faces in public. And uh, it was treason and you, you could be hung or deported for blacking your face in public. Um, and they also suspended habeas corpus. So they brought in martial law. Habeas corpus, show me the body. So in other words, you could be arrested and tried without evidence. Um, wow. And they and the the army were brought in to police the villages and the Pusey Vale, this is the leading our story all the way back to where I grew up, was the, one of the epicenters. It was the epicenter in the West Country. So the village of Orkhanings where, where I grew up, all the stale, the, 
folk stories and tales of hauntings and all the things that surround that village are all pretty much connected to the stories of the rebellion and the people of the horseman's word who led it. Um, the whole thing is totally fascinating, but it, it's there are weird parallels with the modern time. You know, we're going through another revolution now. Um, that was about industrialization, and this this one's more to do with the changes that are coming about through technology and AI. Yeah, um, yeah, it's causing another churning of the organization of society. But yeah, no, it's it's funny that you should have raised this um, this whole kind of specter of you know people's livelihood being wrecked by the. Uh, technological developments because we were actually talking about this on on the podcast that went out last week with leanne townsend um mm -hmm. yeah we got quite into that like the the the, uh, the sort of smart farming thing that's being developed yeah where no one actually needs to go there <laughs> Shit. You're just remotely watching it and sending a little drone down there or a little machine that, that goes and does the job and it's um it's it's just you know it's just like uh you know it reminds me of a dylan song where he says um when you think that you've lost everything you find out you can always lose a little more you know mm -hmm. you think you think like we we surely couldn't take this to, to yet another level but it seems that we can like the level of um you know just not it isn't just what I think is it isn't just dehumanizing things, it is de-organism, de-organisming things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this, this, uh, this mechanical thing takes yet another stride into the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the space previously occupied by organic or social systems, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's an interesting one, actually. Just pondering that, how that feels, you know, feels. This is the thing. We're people, I think, the first place I go is not to think about how that works. It's mm. how does it feel if I put myself into that space? Mm. That's the first place I go. Mm. And then I think about it. Okay, I think about what that means. Um, but I think a lot of people don't. I think, I think there's quite a few people who go straight into thinking about it there I am, I'm placing myself in a, in sort of a future situation. And I'm thinking, how does it, how does it feel? I have no, I can't even put it into words. It's like, there's, there's no part of my life that extends into any of those processes. I'm completely sidelined and presumably, you know, it's, I think this idea that there's a, a leisure society that, you know, it's been put forward before, isn't it? You know, it's such a load of nonsense. If, if people don't have a role to play in society, not only do they become disenfranchised, but those who are pulling the strings are going, why do we need these people? Why should we? You know, they're actually an encumbrance. They're not doing anything. They're not producing anything we need. And so this is what happened with the horsemen. They just weren't right. needed. And so they weren't supported by society anymore because they weren't needed. Okay. And that's how they lost their livelihoods and de descended into poverty and sickness and all the other stuff that goes along with that. And that's what I see. What I see is, is, is the more that technology and AI takes over those kinds of traditionally really physical roles where people need to be present 
in contact organically making decisions and in, and in communion with the things they're working with once people are taken out of that part of the equation they are they don't really have anywhere to go you know they're not going to retrain and become it professionals there's only so many it professionals the world needs that's going to be taken over by ai as well you know um yeah i'm a it's not a particularly utopian vision of the future that I hold, I have to say, at the moment, if we go down that road. Um, I think it's so important that people reconnect with the land and their hands, using their hands, working with natural materials, um, connecting with the plants themselves. You know, we're foragers, but it's only one way we connect with plants. So I also make things from plant materials. I make things out of wood and, you know, I teach people simple survival skills like making cordage out of plant fibers and things that require their physical involvement their senses being used to tell whether things are going right or not mm. or just the process um you know and then there's the whole thing of becoming sensitive to the healing properties of plants understanding that not only understanding that they can be used like chemistry sets like you know growing growing medicines that grow out of the ground but are really like pills in a bottle because they're not you know it's about understanding that the healing properties of plants are connected to the difficulties they face in the places that they grow and the way that they adapt to get around those difficulties so there, there are some deeper connections that can be made what you're saying there with the with the plants intricate and complex um chemistry being a, a you know a consequence of their their need to deal with the conditions in 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 their particular geological climate ecological situation it really means that that plant being as it is constitutes a response to, to that place i just think that's quite interesting definitely um, and somehow then us being in the situation that we're in we we take that on as an ally to to facilitate us having a response it's kind of it's it's kind of a ready-made one you know that here's here's this this and it's not even a single thing is it as you say it's not it's not a magic bullet it's it's um it's a sophisticated yeah pattern of possible responses and 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 so on that when we ingest it into our bodies that chemical complexity yes gives us like a whole toolkit really for one of a better um yeah metaphor something that's uniquely adapted to the surroundings that it you know that it's i don't want to use the word evolved because it could be a little bit uh contentious but you know it's getting really? into the sciencey realm it's about phenotypes it's about the ability to switch genes on and off to respond to different situations and um so, for example, you know, you, you get a, a plant that normally grows in quite humid, moist conditions and it's put into a drier, more arid than usual setting and it encounters a pest that might maybe want to draw on its sugary sap for, as a, a source of food and it finds that its cells are, you know, not as well armoured against that in that situation because it's a drier setting, but the whole thing is a bit more sort of wilted and flaccid and it's much more prone to predation from aphids and things like that so it has to change it has to do some gene switching in order to toughen up its cell walls or to you know maybe um 
maybe make a, a more divided root system that's able to be more efficient in order to take up more water to keep yourself more pumped up. Um, so physiologically, the plants change in very intricate ways, don't they? You know, the, the sap can become less sugary and more bitter to deter certain predators in certain conditions. Or, you know, we find the plants that produce alkaloids like, like the deadly nightshade. Um, that in arid, sunny, dry conditions, it produces a lot more toxic alkaloids than it does in <clears throat> damp environments. And we presume that's because it's going to encounter more predation in those circumstances, so it makes itself more toxic. Right. Uh, Perhaps know, so because, because there are fewer plants in that environment? So that I, d I don't actually know, and I don't know if anyone actually does know. Um, I think you'd, have, you'd almost have to speak the language of deadly nightshade to talk to it, to find out why it does it, if you see what I mean. Mm. Um, we can only assume, we can only make assumptions. And, you know, just because there's a correlation doesn't mean there's causation, right? So we can say, okay, in these kinds of environments, it gets more toxic. And maybe in those kinds of environments, there are, perhaps there's a higher prevalence of, insects that are going to become sap suckers or, or whatever it is, you know, whatever it is that's damaging that plant. But we don't really know, do we? You know, I mean, I was, just, I was just thinking that, you know, in an arid environment, it's less lush, so there's less food to go around. And, and um, yeah, so, good thought. So that the, the predatory insects, you know, they would, they would do a lot more damage to a single plant simply because yeah. there's fewer of them. But yeah. Yeah, it could easily be that. That's that's the kind, exactly the kind of feedback thing that causes these changes to happen. Yeah, uh, we need to be mindful of that because we're changing our own environment, and that environment is the environment we share with the plants and all of the other, you know, natural normal beings out there. And we are changing those subtle feedback loops in ways that we don't we don't even understand the outcomes of of the things that we're doing. Well. Um, I, I think there's a there's a problem. I've I just stumbled across a passage this week, um, in a in a book on a completely different subject. It's it's on um, sort of neurophysiology, really, and how that relates to our experience of of life and our psychology. Mm -hmm. But as sort of part of the foundational stuff, because this is quite a technical book, it's it's hard going, I have to say. But 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 there's some basic stuff laying a foundation around um homeostasis that was it yeah. i lost the word for a moment there yeah and of course that's all about sensitive uh signaling which which is a feedback uh that then causes an adjustment to the internal state um through the physiology of of the organism but it suddenly hit me while i was reading and rereading this this I mean, it's a fairly straightforward explanation, but I was just trying to make sure I grasp what 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 the basic principles were. Yeah. I thought, well, hang on a minute. We so the ecology then also has this. I mean, I'm sure it's standard thing to sort of talk about this, or I don't know if it is or not. But it just struck me that well, okay, we got homeostasis also in this ecological context, which is whether or not people use that term, but like the. The, the, the feedback mechanisms also must have the same kind of reliably sensitive uh, ways of, of 
of uh, picking up on those signals and responding to them in order to make an adjustment to keep that kind of uh, balance yeah. within within the ecology. And so, because this is something that, that just seems to keep coming up, that one of the things we're doing by opting out of, of vital contact with living systems by our mechanized society, by the fact we don't eat food from here, mm. and et cetera, et cetera, all the many, many ways, even, even like shoes on our feet so we don't feel the ground, all of these kind of things that you could see it both as metaphors and concrete examples of how we are not in vital contact therefore we can't feel yeah if i have a callous skin i can't feel you know and if i've got rubber boots on my feet i can't and if i've got an umbrella above my head i can't feel the rain all these different things but it's just so many different points at which we are now isolated from that vital contact so therefore this homeostasis is not able to function because so far as we are a part in this bigger organism of 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 the ecology of the places that we are and yet we are not able to hear you, you know yeah. the, the feedback is going there's too much there's too much there's not enough there's not enough yeah. or whatever the feedback is and we're totally deaf walking on as if that signal yeah. was not happening signal not received yeah. literally um on a microbial level there are there are loads of examples of this and this directly affects us because obviously um, um, some of the people listening may or may not know, but a human body has about 30 trillion human cells in it. Okay. Roughly. We also have approximately 32 trillion bacterial cells on board. Um, and we have around about 10% of that number. We have about 3 trillion fungal cells on board okay and um 90 trillion 90 trillion active virus particles inside us okay that's what the human organism looks like so we're completely outnumbered and i haven't even mentioned the parasites and primitive organisms called archaea one of the first evolutionary forms that happened. These are the kinds of things that live near deep sea vents in sulfur rich, low oxygen environments. We've got those too in our bodies. Okay. So we're hugely outnumbered by many other forms of life. And the human being, like we're less than 50%, way less than 50% human cells. Most of this community, over 90% of it lives in our gut. Um, where it weighs about the same as the, um, it, weighs about, it weighs about five pounds, okay? Five pounds of life that is essentially non-human in a way, if you want to define it that way. And because fungus cells are really big and bulky, 50% of the volume of that is fungus. So there's about 240 odd grams of living fungus on average per individual walking around inside of us, okay? Now, all of these living creatures interact directly with our nervous system and they also interact directly with our immune system. And they do so by signaling um, using compounds called chemokines and cytokines and signaling compounds called interleukins. Okay, so they can communicate. We now know they communicate directly with neurons. People used to think, is there any kind of feedback loop between the inhabitants of the microbiome and the nervous system. It turns out there's actually a direct, a direct feedback mechanism. Mm. Okay, for example, and 
you know, our paradigm is shifting. So we used to talk about, um, well, we used to think about the nervous system, the central control thing being in the brain, and the rest of it was just a bunch of wires, really, that went out into the rest of the body. Now we talk about the gut-brain axis, and I think pretty soon we're going to be really embracing the concept that the brain actually occupies the whole body space, okay? Just because we've got this grey matter floating around like a blancmange in our skull, um, the, act the actual nervous system as a whole is far more important than separating out one part of it and seeing it as a separate organ. So yeah. the microbes that live in our gut can directly signal to neurons that are part of the whole nervous system and they have direct effects on mood, for example, on blood chemistry, um, you know, on, on the endocrine system, on all of the organs that produce hormones and regulate our body, our homeostasis. They have a direct effect. Mm. Um, and the gut is also the front line of the immune system in one way. You know, the skin is also the front line, but there are immune cells lining the gut and also lining our skin that actually capture proteins and carbohydrates from the cell walls of things that might otherwise infect us. And they yeah. go inwards and report to the T cells and the B cells and trigger an immune response. But people have forgotten something really fundamental, in my opinion, which is that the immune system's job is not just to keep out harmful stuff because keeping out harmful stuff will not keep us alive. Letting in good stuff keeps us alive. Its job is to let in good stuff. Keeping wow. out is part of that process. So the immune system is, when it, when it comes into contact with our food, what it's doing is it's actually sampling that it's bringing back samples of that material into the immune complex to try and understand whether they're safe or not and of course we have things like memory t-cells in there that are that sort of are like a catalog of responses against things that were harmful so there are comparisons that get made between these fragments of molecules from our food and our environment that get brought in all day long all night long our bodies are sensing whether aspects of our environment are harmful or helpful and its job is to let healthy things in in order to sustain us so it's yeah. kind of a flip you know way of flipping over really the interpretation of the immune system it's not all about the guards at the gate keeping our bad guys it's actually all about a mechanism to let lots of good things in to sustain us well can i just finish on yeah that? yeah go on go on it's okay so we're going back to feed, feedback mechanisms right so um, there was a guy, this guy called Professor Jeff Leach, um, who was part of the, the um, human, human microbiome project and the American Gut Project um, from the uh, University of California, San Diego, I think. And they took a team over to work with the Hadza Bush people in Africa. And they made some really important discoveries. They discovered that this huge community that lives within us was much more diverse in species among the bush people than it was in Americans and Western Europeans, vastly more diverse. Um, and they found microbes in there that enabled the huds of bush people to, for example, browse all day long on plants that were rich in oxalic acid, okay? And without causing any inflammation or harm to the gut or the urinary tract, um, because they have a group of organisms called oxalobacter on board. 
which actually breaks down oxalic acid and turns it into food, turns it into nutrition in our gut, okay? Whereas we lack, generally, with our diet not rich in oxalic acid-rich foods, we also lack oxalobacter to digest them. And they actually discovered also that some of the microbes, uh, including, I think, one group of oxalobacter that live inside the human gut in this hunter-gatherer population, are, as far as we know, not found anywhere else on Earth except in the guts of hunter-gatherer humans. So by stopping that behavior, which, of course, in Western Europe, we stopped that behavior en masse um, really quite a long time ago. By stopping that behavior, we stopped putting the food in for a group of microorganisms that only exist inside humans. We are its biological niche. So we're facing the extinction on planet Earth of droves of species of microorganisms that should be living inside the human gut. And they only exist inside the human, and I mean the human gut, not even gut of other animals. We're talking species specific as a niche. Okay? Niche, niche, whatever you want to call it. So there's a there's we're talking about the global extinction that's coming, you know, everyone's talking about that, and we're looking at insect decline and we're now currently looking at a bit of human decline going on which is waking a lot of people up um scary stuff but this decline in microorganisms has been going on for a really long time and when we moved away from being hunter gatherers towards being farmers and then from being farmers towards people who basically eat processed food in packets that's been filled with mold inhibitors, preservatives, all kinds of things that kill off microbes, okay? Not to mention the fact that the, the food itself has probably been nuked, you know, on, in mm. trans mm. the UK. We're actually, we're just not feeding the diverse group of microorganisms that we once had. And, um, and they are literally dying out. But each, each of those microorganisms offers us a set of functionality. In our gut, it's like the, the members of a society. It's like the way that all of the animals in a rainforest op actually offer some function to the ecosystem without which the ecosystem is less robust. Mm. And, and if you take enough functions away, it starts to fall apart. It's the same with the microbes that live within us. Those communities are, generally speaking, beneficial, and everything when it dies feeds something else. So the fungus, when it dies, feeds a group of microbes called bacteroides, for example, that then excrete anti-inflammatory short-chain fatty acids into our bowel and, and reduce bowel inflammation. Um, and then that goes through the bowel wall into the bloodstream and they mod modulate in the reduction of inflammation in the whole body. Those kinds of beneficial relationships based on signaling um, start to die out as the microbes die out, right? So the huds of people have got really robust gastroenteric microbiome full of all of these organisms that we have, ours is, is much weaker because it has a lower diversity it can offer less useful functions to us and if you go back to the idea of a rainforest you know if you start taking out enough <clears throat> not only does the system start to break down but it starts to break down in really big uh complicated ways you know whole chains of feedback are broken when, when the fungal population gets reduced, um, the clouds of fungal spores above the forest 
are reduced. So the rainfall is reduced because that seeds rain. So the climate changes. So you get bigger, much more macro effects. Once you take out enough members of the community and then the remaining members, because they've lost some of their food sources or because the chemistry of the substrate has now changed, start competing. They start moving from one area of tissue where they lived to a different part of tissue. Or they start crossing boundaries into bodily organs and using them as food and they become pathogens. They become toxic to us when before they were our helpers that provided ecosystem functions. So right the way down to the micro, the same principle holds exactly the same principle you were talking about. Out that, you know, ecological homeostasis, I don't know what the word is for it, but it's like about robustness that is created by diversity but it's not random diversity it's into a unique place that offers unique functions ecosystem resources to everything else and when you remove something from the system you remove those resources (laughs) and the whole thing starts to become really really uh unstable and a lot you get this oscillation of stability i think it's really interesting because what you know, what I was flagging up is, is our inability to hear <clears throat> and therefore to respond to, to feedback. But it's it's almost like the picture that you're painting there is that there comes a point where these these signals falling on deaf ears means that you wake up one morning, and you think, oh, my God, what have I been? I need to listen. You know, you take your ear muffers off and you you. You scrape your callous skin off so you can feel again, and you, you take the scales off your eyes, and there's nobody there. Yeah, there, there are no signals anymore. It's too late. And I was just thinking your your um your thing about the skin. I remember I remember hearing you talk a while back, and and you introduced me to this uh, donut idea, which I've repeated many many times since because it's such a helpful thing to realise just how much skin we actually have. Mm. So you're describing these things basically on the frontier between the inside of us and the outside of us. But I'll just say for everybody, you, 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 you know, um, the the donut idea is that our skin actually goes inside our mouths, down through our esophagus, into our digestive tract, and eventually comes out the other end with our yeah. anus. But the same is true of our lungs. It's actually true, in fact, of our ears. There's, you know, there's all kinds of skin that turns in. So that there's this surface of ourselves, um, w- which is a kind of frontier between the inside and the outside. So yeah. it's 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 really interesting that you're talking about the immune system and all of these other organisms who are both positive and negative gatekeepers. For me, one of the one of the central things about life is the presence of these semi-permeable membranes that have this possibility of things going in and out but when the system's working we 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 have a very efficient and and highly tuned sensitive uh method of making sure the right amount of something comes in and other things don't come in and then at a certain stage what needs to come out comes out you know like eg with breathing and and uh excretion and 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 so on but the picture that you're painting is, 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 is very profound because it's, it's talking about the, uh, the um, complexity of our basically partnership with, with many, many, many 
other species. So that the, the sensitivity of that, you know, what's coming in and what's going out being just just right, as opposed to a machine where there's just a there's just a wall. Yeah. Uh, we, we, that's how we're going to deal with it. We're just going to put this impenetrable barrier, you know, because it's actually so crude. You know, we think a machine is such a sophisticated thing, but it's actually unbelievably blunt as an instrument compared to this sort of softness that we have with 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 uh, organic tissues that don't need to be rock solid that don't need to be impermeable because they've got so many mates basically this is the thing we have these we have these friendships with other species and other beings that we we don't necessarily consciously listen to but but the other the other thing i was going to just pick up on is, is you saying about the brain because what what I've been picking up the, the the book I was referring to is all about the vagus nerve and so on, mm-hmm. um, and 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 one of the things that they've set straight in in discussing the vagus nerve is that the uh, so the vagus nerve is able to communicate from all of our organs and so on to the brain, but also the brain is is a command center in a sense of 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 of, of uh, giving instructions to various organs. But the fact is, it's eighty percent that is received from the body going to the brain and only 20%. So the signaling is 80% going to the brain feedback and uh-huh. only 20% is coming down from the brain through the vagus to the gut, the heart and etc. saying, Oh, do this, do that. Yeah. But even when you think about it, all of that 20% that's coming down is merely implementing the information that everything else has just fed to it in terms of the 80%. That's right. So, Making it anyway. more specific to the body that it's got to manage. Right, 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 right. Yeah, the, the the body that it is now. So it's home. Yeah, it is. It is this sort of finely tuned homeostasis. But yeah, that's what is truly, truly amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And then when we look at the plant kingdom, well, let's let's go back to foraging again. Okay, so you know, there's, there's a lots and lots of feedback mechanisms between the organism that eats the plant and the plant itself. There's all, there's lots and lots of different subtle things going on there. On one level, on a neurological level, on a, on a neurochemistry level, when we forage, it stimulates the release of dopamine in the brain. Okay, so dopamine is a wonderful thing. Dopamine makes us feel more relaxed. It makes us um, feel calmer, but also in some way excited because it actually drives us to repeat the behaviour, whatever it is that we're doing, that stimulates more dopamine release, and it's conjectured that the reason for um, dopamine release is actually because it compels an organism to carry on doing things that support life. Okay, so prior to the days of, you know, people manufacturing synthetic chemicals to get high on, or prior to the days of supermarkets where people will literally walk around selecting things from the aisles in brightly coloured packages, which also stimulates dopamine release. Okay, prior to that, it was actually all connected to the behavior of gathering food and also procreation. You know, having sex causes dopamine release too, which means that the species carries on. When people go out foraging, they find food, they bring it back to the community. There is, there is a kind of um, a, a biochemically based sense of well-being that comes from foraging through this dopamine release, okay, that keeps us doing it, keeps us wanting to do it. It also makes us feel good inside because we're actually connecting with the hardwired biochemistry that we have evolved with over 
countless, countless millions of years before we were even human beings at all. So that is going on. And it's it's a really powerful effect. Um, Even honeybees produce dopamine in their tiny bee brains when they're out foraging on flowers. Okay, it's what keeps them doing it. Um, And that's not to be underestimated. And that's just one of the subtle effects. But then if you go down to the level of looking at the various different organisms that partner with the plants, um, we start opening up this whole world of what in a way I think is the plant's microbiome. It's connection with fungi um, and also with helper bacteria that help the fungi to do their job. And, you know, there's a lot, a lot coming out about this at the moment. I know recently uh, the BBC produced a wonderful animation that went pretty viral, I think, on social media about the wood wide web and mm. the connections between tree roots. And it's based mm. on wonderful work by Suzanne Simard that uh, was published quite recently, just, I don't know, three or four years ago, after 30 years of her work, where she discovered that not only do trees talk to each other, but it's far more sophisticated than that. And that growing mature trees actually uh, on a nice sunny day will feed 80% of the carbohydrates that they make. So, you know, they're all there photosynthesizing, gathering sunlight and carbon dioxide and manufacturing sugars and carbs. And 80% of those carbs are fed directly through the root system, through fungal mycelial strands in the soil to the other trees. Okay. And, because fungus itself builds its own network of mycelium strands, which are basically long tubular cells. It builds them out of carbohydrates, so the fungus gets to benefit. But fungal cells produce water, so when the trees are struck by drought, because they're connected to loads more fungus mycelium, the fungus mycelium is able to feed water directly into the tree roots. And they also act as a kind of a banking system where... um, you know, if, if there's too much, not too much, but an excess of food being made in one part of the forest, they're able to redistribute it to the trees that aren't getting enough sunlight so that they produce enough carbohydrates of their own. And they're also able to transmit electrical signals through the mycelium. Um, there's this seven hertz, um, you know, something that looks very, very much like a human nerve action impulse if you connect it to an oscilloscope. And it's being done now, um, you know, so the whole fungal mycelium network is connecting ele- electrically to the trees and it's able to signal to the root systems of the trees. But also it's able to pass soluble compounds. So when the fungus is there out in the forest, breaking down dead squirrels and dead bacteria and dead branches, the soluble end results of that, some of those are plant nutrients, nitrates, phosphates you know, potassium salts and all the minor nutrients, copper, manganese and zinc and all the rest of it. And they get fed in soluble form through the tubular fungus mycelium back into the tree roots. But one of the things that she found that was pretty shocking was that in some way that we as yet don't understand that mature trees are able to specify that their excessive nutrients get fed to their own genetic offspring. And then when there's an excess that even they don't need, that gets fed to members of the same species. And then when there's an excess that they don't need, the rest gets fed to the other trees and other plants, obviously, because trees are plants that are connected to the same fungus mycelium mats within the soil. 
Okay, so there's this hugely complex system with masses and masses of biofeedback mechanisms going on all the way through it that keeps the whole thing robust and stable as a whole. Because if something affects it, whether it's climatic, whether it's drought, whether it's a pest that comes uh, from one direction and starts attacking a tree, which is then able to biochemically signal through the mycelium to the other trees, which means that they can then toughen up their cell walls or produce more bitter sap or whatever. Whatever it is, this huge interconnectedness, which involves lots of other species, not just the trees themselves, increases the robustness of the system. Mm. When you isolate the trees out and remove the connections and the microorganisms, including the fungi, die out, um, suddenly the trees are vulnerable, okay? They have to fend for themselves, literally. They can't spread their excess food to their offspring or yeah. other yeah. species or share it back into the nutrient cycle so that amount of nutrients available is vastly diminished. They can't warn each other of pests and predators. They're not getting the drought protection that is offered to them by fungus mycelium. So let's drill this right the way down to the level of plants that we forage from. So, you know, we do forage from trees quite a lot. But even right the way down to the humble plantain, you know, which is one of my favourite uh, food plants, because in the summer it offers me leafy salad if I you know, put little stacks of them together and chop them up across the veins. I put them into into salads with other leaf plants. Mm. Um, and the unopened flower buds of, of the ribwort and the greater plantain, you know, before they even sort of telescope out into a long a long um, structure, are really nice. They're, they're just nutty and chewy and really, really tasty to pick straight from the earth. Mm. And then they go through this little phase when the flower petals form, these little tiny creamy white coloured petals, and, and the whole thing becomes a bit cardboardy and papery and not particularly pleasant. And then the seeds ripen after that, and, and the seed heads are just rich in omega oils, they're delicious, they're nutty, um, and the whole seed heads, you know, can be stir-fried, maybe with a bit of sesame oil or something like that, and they're delicious. So plantain's a wonderful plant for food, but if you eat plantain leaves from a place where the soil has not been messed around with too much. So if you take plantain leaves, not from somebody's lawn that's had loads of weed and feed and fertilizer put in and, you know, something like that sort of, sort of setting. But if you take it from mature pasture land that's really only been grazed for hundreds of years, or you take it from a hay meadow, it tastes different. It tastes of mushrooms. There's a mushroom flavour, particularly in the ribwort plantain, stronger in the leaf. And I'm always pointing this out to people on foraging walks and they look at me like, oh, yeah. And then they chew it and they go, oh, my God, it tastes like raw mushrooms. OK, now. Something I found out is that the plantains, the plantago species in general, have a, an even higher level of mycorrhizal connection to soil fungi, mycelium connections to different species of soil fungi than do many other plants. They're incredibly connected to the fungal ecosystems. And what I believe is, is that there is literally a fungal flavor because there's more fungus present and more fungal derived compounds present in those plants. You can actually taste in a way, you're tasting the richness of, of the soil itself. Um, and then also plants contain endophytic fungi. So they have single-celled fungi that live within 
the spaces between the plant cells, and there can be 100 or 200 species in a single plant. Yeah. Okay? And these plants appear to be incredibly rich in endophytic mm. Now, to the plants themselves, they're providing ecosystem functions. They're strengthening the plant's immune system and its resilience, and also connecting it to all the other plantains and all the other plants, and mainlining it into minerals that are present in the soil that it really couldn't take up at the same level without the fungus. But those, the presence of those fungal cells and fungal compounds is also modulating our immune systems. It's also strengthening our immune systems too. So we become part of that system once we plug into it by eating the plant, by ingesting it. We're becoming part of that system. Hmm. And I think that's remarkable. I think the implications of that are massive. Back to you, Mark. I've waffled on a bit there. No, that's beautiful. The plantain is really, really interesting. And, and I've got a couple of uh, little stories about that. One, I mean, one is I, I do use it for little cuts and, and, and wounds and so on. Mm. Um, and uh, to that end, I chopped a load up one, one time. I thought, well, I'll just have it as a ready thing and see if it lasts a few days just in case we need it again. I'll yeah. chop a bit more than I need. Um, and, and, and so I, I put all of this very finely chopped plantain into a small jar and, and, and just put the lid on. And the thing is, that was, it was still without any sign of um, mold or, or off notes because I tasted it. A, a good year later, it was incredible. So what we, what we basically ended up with was lacto-fermented ribwort plantain yeah. Very sour, yeah. no salt added, no anything else added. Um, and I think it, it's it's probably the most stable ferment of, that I've ever done. With, it's amazing. With no, no airlock or anything like that to make sure that it was anaerobic. It, it, it was just completely stable. I think at that point, it was probably not that much good um, for healing and so on. I, I don't know how it would have changed chemically and, and a sort of high lactic acid content, but... Still, that, that was quite a lesson for me that here's, here's a plant that, that has got so much, uh, well, I don't know if it's the fungi or, or, or what's going on, but it's steering, it's, it's making everything back off that would, would, would turn it moldy or off or something like that. Yeah. Well, I, I think you're, pro you know, conjecturally, I would say you're probably right. And that a lot of fungal organisms produce um, bactericidal compounds. Mm. Mm. they themselves are not predated upon by harmful bacteria in the first place so you know a lot of the more dodgy pathogenic bacteria that you wouldn't want to eat would be suppressed quite actively by the presence of many fungi um, for the same reasons because they digest them their cells as well okay so you know yeah. what you're saying is probably spot on but also the um, the healing effects of something are not always about the chemicals in it but they're often modulated by the gut so when you swallow it it's the kinds of things that the gut microbes can break it down into right yeah it by a chemistry that has the healing properties um and and so it's not always about the chemistry of the plant in the strictest sense it, it's kind of it's a virtuous chain of things consuming other things mm creating metabolites, excreting byproducts that then have some other effect or feed something else. And so yeah. it was still very medicinally active in many ways. May have changed it a bit. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I just, I just thought, well, I know that I know the fresh stuff works, so I'm not going to muck about and put that on a, you know, as an experiment. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. put the fresh stuff on a cut rather than that. Um, but yeah, I mean, you say about the the, the chain. Uh, I mean, to me, it's it's it sounds like things unfolding. You know, like the the presence of the plant, the presence of the bacteria, and then there's this interaction where, whereby these potentials unfold. Yeah, a, a kind of. Yeah, it puts me in mind of, of you know medieval alchemical texts. Right, hugely long, very poetic language that they use describing the relationships between all of the different processes that they put plant materials through. Um, you know, and maybe it's not a literal, literal. Maybe it's more of a metaphor, but it, it's um, it's extremely complex, and we don't understand often. The end result is our understanding of these things is still very, very blunt indeed, actually. Yeah. But I've got a lovely little anecdote about the plantain, though. Um, I was teaching foraging. I did a foraging walk at a festival a few years ago. Is I'll give it a plug. I don't know if it's still going. It was the, the Workhouse Festival up in Wales, where um, a place called Llanvuthlin, uh, where um, a group of people have taken over an old Victorian workhouse, mm. um, which is partly derelict. And it's got huge grounds around it and some land that goes down to a river and some woods. And it's like a big community. So they've got craft workshops there, people selling stuff that they make. There are also people living there and people go to, you know, they do yoga workshops and retreats and all sorts of stuff. Um, and they have a festival there once a year to fund it. Over, you know, a couple of thousand people. And I went to this festival. I got invited to be the, the foraging person. And we were out on a walk with a guy um, called Rob. I still remember his cheeky face right now because he's one of these characters, you know, unforgettable characters, larger than life. And we're walking along and he goes, excuse me, um, I have a problem. And I said, what's that? He said, well, I've just been uh, bitten by a horse fly. He said, but I'm really allergic to horse fly bites and um, I haven't brought my EpiPen with me. And I might be struggling to breathe in, in, you know, in, in sort of 20 minutes or so. He said, you know, I'm, I'm really scared. And, and I said, right, okay, we need to get back to the camp so you can get, in, you can contact people and get your EpiPen. So we turned around, but just at that moment, I looked down and literally in between his pair of Dr. Martins was a plantain plant right between his feet. And it's funny how this happens, you know? So I said, look, this is an antihistamine. This plant, really? Yeah, I said, yeah, this plant is an antihistamine. It's quite a good one, too. So we picked the ribwort plantain between his feet, and I got him to chew it all up and suck down as much of the juice as possible and then rub the green chewed-up material on the bite area as well. And then we set off about walking calmly, without panicking, back to, you know, back to the festival camp. And about 10 minutes later, we were almost back, and uh, he said, well... By now, I'd be itching all over and, uh, you know, I'd be starting to feel really strange and maybe, maybe, you know, I'd start to pant and he said, but there's nothing going on. There's absolutely nothing going on. And then somebody who was in the group, this girl turned to him and she said, well, if you, you can't see where the bite was, it's on your neck. It was actually his neck. Um, she said, but it's gone. You can't see it. It's, it's complete because it was coming up red, you know, at the point very yeah. quick coming up like a red swollen area inflamed area and it, by this time 10 minutes had passed and there was no visible sign of where it was and um you know i kept checking in with him he had his epipen back at the he didn't use it back at the camp 
and he didn't need it. And it turned out that um, he was the guy selling coffee at the festival. He had the caravan that was the, the coffee, you know, real coffee stall. And uh, so we had free coffee all weekend, which was also quite a nice little spin-off. So thanks, Blanting. Yeah, brilliant. Got you, got you some free coffee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I've, I've got a less, a less, less spectacular story. Um, but just to do with uh, putting putting plantain on a wound, because uh-huh. um, I did something really stupid last week. I was out on the salt marsh with my kids, mm. and um, I let them play in the mud. You know, I mean, it's it's quite a wild space, but still, I should have known better. And yeah. guess what's happened? They're barefoot in the mud, uh-huh. uh, and I don't know what, but there's some some broken glass or something metal yeah. in that mud. Uh, yeah. So don't let your kids play barefoot in the mud, folks. It's not worth it. Um, no. And I'm walking back to the car because we we taken back to and left the kids playing, and they start screaming. I have to run back, pick him up, and there's this blood pouring out of his foot. Yeah. Oh, Where I took his sock off, tied it tight, stopped the bleeding, and then when we get back on this properly on the shore and we're walking along, there's we bought plantain everywhere. So I said we're going to stop now. Mm-hmm. Going to put the the, uh, the the plantain on top of that wound and get you home. So we got him home, cleaned it up, and I've got a I've got an excellent spice grinder. It's like a really heavy weight thing, yeah. really heavy, so you don't even have to put much pressure. It does like a pestle and mortar with teeth. You know, it really grinds up the thing. Uh, and so I've got got lots of plantain just ground to pulp, and we cleaned the wound, bandaged it up nicely with just a great big load of ground up plantain and we we just kept repeating that i actually put a bit of wound wart in there the second day so mm-hmm. basically plantain and wound wart no no other kind of we didn't take in a hospital it was a deep cut yeah and there's been not a trace of any kind of infection or or um pus or anything like that it's healing up now there's i think he may have a slight green tattoo in the end yeah i don't know it's it's coming off but i have a feeling he might have a little green streak on his foot from where this well, this plant dies. Ended up- It'll probably fade eventually. Yeah. I did a really similar thing with my hand. I gashed it open with a bill hook. Um, I was out coppicing it out in some hazel coppice a few years back, you know, because in previous jobs, I've done a lot of wood- woodland management mm. work. And um, I was at my own, stupidly probably, working with nobody else present. I had a really sharp bill hook. Um, and I missed, you know, what? I missed. I caught my hand, gashed right the way across the the kind of pad at the base of my thumb, that big sort of fleshy pad, mm. you know, in the palm of my hand, and it gaped open. Um, really hard place to close up. There was nobody present. I didn't know what to do. And I saw yarrow growing. Right. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. Which, uh, yarrow, you know, it's got this amazing, you probably know this, Miles, but for the benefit of those listening, you know, one of the old names of yarrow is archer's balm. It was used in battlefields to close and to sterilize and to purge wounds from arrows and spears, okay? So there I am with this yarrow, and I'm like, okay, this is the best possible opportunity to give this one a whirl. So I picked some lovely fresh yarrow leaves. Um, Again, spit poulticed, so I I chewed up the yarrow leaves to make a nice green gloopy mush because Mm. that's all I had. And I packed the wound with it and then bandaged it over with my bandana, bandaged around my hand. Okay, and it healed with the arrow inside it. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, I, I had a green streak across my palm for a few weeks. 
Um, there was no infection at all. It healed incredibly rapidly. And, and what yarrow does is it causes the wound to purge. So it causes it to pump a little bit of capillary blood for about 30 seconds. It flushes and pushes out anything that might, might have been heading inwards. And then the sort of styptic effect closes it and stops it bleeding. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. A wound with an irregular edge, actually, but this was this was quite a clean wound, really. It was just very deep. So I pat the yarrow, the the chewed up, spat upon yarrow into the wound, bandaged it up, and after two or three days, I, I unwound the bandage and had a good old look at it. It was fully closed, fully granulated, you know, healed over, um, just with a green streak. The healing was so fast, this left no scar. And after a few weeks, the green completely disappeared. And that was a really deep wound. By rights, it would, would have been, you know, definitely at least half a dozen stitches. You have nothing. So there you go. But these plants we deal with, they're really, really powerful beings, actually. They're powerful, and yet they're so near and available. You know, you, you it just never ceases. It. it was right there when I needed it, your yarrow. Was right there when you needed it. That plantain was between that guy's feet, you know. It's like... Yeah. I, I can't really move away from the recurring thought of just how friendly all this stuff is. Yeah. It, it's right there with us and yeah. it's beckoning us to uh, to just receive the benefit, you know, that, that's, that's, that's there. Um, yeah. It, it makes you feel better, really, in terms of like all the, all the kind of threat and, and looming disaster and so on. There's still, there's still a bunch of friendliness that is... Uh, you know, tapping us on the shoulder, I feel. Nature is one big organism. And uh -huh. all the while, you know, this back to this homeostasis, but in, in the whole of nature kind of idea that, that mm. tabled earlier on, you know, when, every, when there's sufficient diversity to, for everything to offer up its unique benefits to the system, yeah. it just rubs along nicely. And, you know, yeah, it, it's true. There are predators, there are prey relationships. Those are also part of the system. And nothing yeah. even fungus mycelium, which is more or less immortal, is not indestructible. Um, but ultimately, the system is one of benefit and beneficial relationships in, when you take it as a whole. Yeah. So if we start reducing that diversity and all the benefits that get offered, the things fall into a competitive status with each other and start to break down. I think we need to learn that lesson powerfully in our own society and we need to mimic nature if we want to be successful, not seek to dominate it or not, not seek to distill the complexity of these signaling relationships in nature down to very small, mechanical, blunt relationships. Yeah. Because that is going to lead to our demise and the demise of the ecosystem. We need to, yeah. copy, we need to be part of nature as we truly are if we want to truly succeed. It's so, it's so funny. I was just thinking, where did this come from? There was, there was a, I think it was a Simpsons thing where, where there's, there's some hippie doing something or other and then somebody else comes along who's clearly on the wrong track and, and, and the hippie says to him, simplify, man, simplify. Mm -hmm. I was thinking, no, actually, that's no. A completely wrong advice. The opposite. Comple <laughs> complexify, man. Yeah. <laughs> and, complexity because it's yeah. so complex, but it, will, it opens our minds even to think about it to ponder it um, opens our hearts and our minds to that complexity it makes us realize i think that well it, it makes me realize um just what a gift this life is you know just what an incredible opportunity 
you know how we take our place in that is is um is also quite sweet and beneficial when you when you when you realize well look in order to stand to benefit you know in order to stand in this place where the good stuff that's here is actually available to me rather than just being over there but i can't reach it or i don't know how or you know in, in some way you know this potential benefit is is eluding me yeah you know but that's because we've just stepped out you know and 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 it, and it turns out that stepping out is by making the mistake of thinking that the key to unlocking the benefits is to be in control yeah whereas actually the key to unlocking the benefits is to surrender to 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 the fact that you cannot be in control all you can do is find your niche uh find the particular bit in all of this that you are uh yes that's that's how it unfolds which which um kind of different approach but um i I would say to people you know on this subject i say that life's a journey of discovery but it's about discovering what you're for what you're for yeah it's about what finding out what you're for that's it that's yeah, so that 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 brings us back to the Robin Hartford chat uh, before we 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 were looking at out of Robin's window. So I was just jamming with the uh, with the phrase point of view. So now we can see your point of view. You know, from here you see this. You know. mm-hmm. But then uh, but then we start. I start to uh, to play with the words and say, what's the point of view? <laughs> what yeah. is the point of view? <laughs> what are you for? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can hear the bee. We've got beehives out in the garden. I can actually. Um... I can hear a low humming, which is a good sign because they're, you know, it's been a little bit chilly at nights and stuff. So we're only seeing a few bees emerging at the peak mm. times of the day when there's a lot of heat. But uh, they've all come through the winter quite well. And um, if there are any beekeepers out there listening, is it okay, Miles, if I quickly share a couple of observations that I have about the bees? Wonderful. Um, because the bees are a, a really important part of our garden we grow our own medicinal herbs and our own vegetables but also we see our garden as a little island of diversity that you know helps along the diversity of the whole neighborhood really because we're surrounded by agricultural land and, and you know some some of that land gets hit quite hard at times and the bees used to die out quite a bit at the end of winter we'd, we'd find you'd lose a colony or a couple of colonies and they'd struggle, um, you know, they, they had to requeen themselves or maybe they just die out altogether. And I was doing the thing that we're all taught to do, you know, um, the orthodox thinking is that our bees um, are suffering badly from Varroa mite infection, which is a, a type of mite that came, I think, from the Middle East and it carries a, a viral infection with it. And the viral infection causes uh, deformed bees and weak bees. So. The, the mites tend to latch onto the larvae of bees, uh, particularly of drone bees, and um, it basically sucks their blood out. Okay, mm. but it also transfers a virus into the bee colony. And you end up with bees with deformed wings and they're undersized and they're just not very good. And it weakens the colonies. But the, the advice generally is you should treat the bees each year, a couple of times a year with substances, either thymol, which is a an alcohol substance derived from the thyme plant, but it's in a very strong, crystallized, concentrated form that's really quite toxic. Mm. Um, and it's toxic to the human nervous system and also to the bee nervous system. 
or things like oxalic acid, actually, you know, the, this, again, a naturally occurring substance, but in a, in a mm. still concentrated, purified form that's very irritating to the bees and makes them clean the mites off. So the, these are the kind of things that most beekeepers are doing. And I, I started noticing that after I treated the bees in the autumn, they were really unhappy. They just seemed really, really distressed. And no matter what anyone says, I put this down to the chemical treatments because they are chemical treatments, even if they're plant derived and decided I was going to just try and not treat them. And what I discovered, and this is now nearly six years ago. Okay. What I discovered was, was that the bees went through the winter with a larger colony of bees. And in the spring, um, when I checked the Varroa count, the number of mites in the colony was, because you have this floor that you slide out and the dead mites drop to the bottom, the number of mites was no different um, from not treating to when I was treating, actually. After a little period of time had elapsed, the number of mites was more or less the same, and it seemed to be quite stable and not getting worse and not getting better. Mm. But what I wasn't getting was so many deformed bees, okay? Mm. And... My colonies, since six years ago, when I completely stopped all forms of chemical treatment, and I did one other thing, which was that I always left them enough of their own honey to get through the winter without requiring any sugar syrup to be put on as feed. So they were always using their own honey through the winter. Those two things, since I, I did those two things, I've not lost a single colony in six years. Whereas every winter before that, I would treat for Varroa, and also, you know, you take off some honey and in the middle of winter or not in the middle of winter, but probably in the early spring, but you find them running out of food and put sugar syrup on to get them through. Yeah. Those were the times when we were losing bees. So I'm, I now feel that this need to treat the Varroa is, is wrong. It's about managing the strength of the colony by giving them their own honey, the things that they need, that they've manufactured, full of these lovely, um, you know, complex phytonutrients that they're getting from the plants mm. that's what's going to get them through not not chemical synthetic plant derivatives that are actually quite strong acidic chemicals um, in the case of oxalic acid for example but actually it's about them getting their own herbal medicine from their own honey um, which is what they're made for and Paul Stamets um, over in, the, in America has been doing some work with mushrooms and bees um, he's now coming up with commercially available products, but initially it was all about a childhood memory that he had of seeing bees drinking the, um, the liquid dew forming on mushroom fruit bodies, and uh, particularly Ganodermas, I think. You know, so things like uh, in this country, we've got a lot of Ganoderma australi, the southern bracket, and Ganoderma aplanatum, the, the artist bracket, particularly growing on beech trees. Um, so I thought, hey, we'll give this a go. And, and our bees have got a little pond. It's, it's an old Belfast sink with gravel in it and water in it and a little solar pump. I need to get a new pump because it's just bust. And um, what I do is each year I float a Ganoderma fruit body, a conch, the hard woody fruit body of the artist bracket. I just float one in the bee pond. And the bees, it, it soaks up the moisture and the sponge-like pore surface underneath where the spores are made becomes like a sponge and as the mushroom sl slowly decomposes the bees crawl over the surface and they drink the moisture oh. out of that sponge okay and um, what Paul Stamets found was was that the bees that were feeding on Ganodermas you could detect Ganoderma mycelium in the bee colonies wow 
he conjectured that because of its antibacterial properties and antiviral properties and all the rest of it, bees' <clears throat> immune system as a colony. So maybe that's got something to do with why we've had six years of not losing bee colonies as well. So mm. to the beekeepers mm. listening, I reckon it's really important to feed them their own honey in the winter. And I think stop treating for varroa mites. It's really counterproductive because it weakens the bee colonies and makes them sick. Mm. Over winter in our climate where things are quite tough for them in the winter, if they're already weakened in the autumn by one of these treatments. So there you go. I'd like to offer that out to the world. That's brilliant. Oh, it's lovely to hear that. And it, and it also ties in neatly because I wanted to pick up on something you were talking about earlier with uh, bees and us with that um, thought about the uh, the dopamine system. Well, I was really interested to hear that because because um, I'm very conscious of how dopamine is is uh, problematic around addictive behaviors and the the, the uh, it's the kind of fuel of modern life, isn't it? That people are are being trapped into one kind of re- reward seeking behavior after another. Yes. And I kind of had a mental note to self, which I haven't got around to doing, which is let's look at what the good press is about dopamine, because clearly this is integral to our um, neurochemistry yeah. and, and, and our, neuro, you know, our, our um, mental, emotional, motivational functioning. Yeah, yeah. So you've just kind of done that for me because I haven't got around to doing it. Um, just to see, to see that, like, this, this is actually really good stuff. You know, that's, I'm, I'm tapping into dopamine when I get excited to find a morel or, that's you know, it. When, when I've found my, my Japanese knotweed patch is, is starting to produce again, in spite of the fact the bastards poisoned it three years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Got some, it's, it's, it's recovering. Um, things like that. It hadn't occurred to me that that, that was my reward centers firing with, with dopamine. And that's Brilliant. what keeps me going. Um, yeah. In, in, in that kind of context. So addiction, can I just say? Yeah. In that context that you've just described, addiction is a positive behavioral trait that has been subverted. Yeah. Okay. We are supposed to be addicted to finding food. Yeah. That's what keeps us alive and makes us strong. And it is foraging specifically. So if you ask someone to go and pick you some knotweed, you don't get the dopamine release that you get when you actually put your hands around the stem and cut the stem or whatever it is you do. That's when you get your dopamine release. It's that interaction. Okay. Um, now I'm going to just throw, you know, I'm just going to, we're going to look at the demon in the closet for a second, I think, right? So there is another kind of foraging behavior that goes on. And I think it's the symptom of the way this positive behavior has been, uh, twisted and perverted really in our society. And that is shopping. Mm. Okay. People get addicted to shopping. And when they're out there, you know, browsing the shelves or looking at the clothes on the rack or even shopping on Amazon, and I'm as guilty as anybody, um, what they're doing is sorting through lots of things. And in a way, they're kind of mentally firing up a lot of the same neural networks that they're using when they're foraging in the undergrowth. Okay, and it does stimulate dopamine release and it is addictive. But what we've done is replaced nature's. I don't want to say nature's supermarket because to be a forager, you mustn't just be a consumer. You have to be a part of the system. But in a way, we've replaced nature's supermarket, to use a term I don't like, 
with a different kind of supermarket, which then means that we have to exchange theoretical token value in order to get the things that sustain life and, and do so relatively poorly because it's not fresh and we're not getting that direct kind of response that we get when we gather it for ourselves. And so I don't know if this is a cynical move or, or whether, you know, whether it's somebody trying to control us. I, I'm not looking at it that way. I just want people to draw their own conclusions. OK, but somehow or other, we've landed ourselves in this hole where we are all controlled. And one of the things that controls us, one of one of the vectors of that control is this dopamine response. Yeah. So somebody did. I can't remember the name of the experiment or anything else, but it's an absolutely brilliant one. I don't know. Maybe, you know, it. Um, somebody uh, did an experiment, I believe, with rat communities where. You know, you had these rats that were um, conditioned into sort of idealized addictive behavior. And then they put them into an area where rats were able to behave as natural rats, that had, a, had the right kind of habitat and everything else and, and was a much more normal situation for them. And the addictive behavior, I believe, was was lost. Yeah. Yeah. What it was, was the was the. Um... They were getting their dopamine hit. I think it was cocaine they got them all addicted to. Uh-huh. But they were basically getting their dopamine hit from the cocaine because of uh, conditions of social isolation, mainly. And, yes. and, and what happened was that they, that they then started getting the, the, the dopamine hit from just the bonding with, with, with the other rats, just the, yeah. just the social contact was given them the reward. And, and that, that gave rise to some of the most recent thinking, which I think has got to be spot on which is basically saying that addiction is symptomatic of, yes. of a breakdown in your capacity to form bonds and, and, and feel good because that's still neurochemistry. When you, when you, when you gel with someone and bond with them, you've got all kinds of stuff rushing through your bloodstream that's making you feel good. Yeah. So it's not like that we're not supposed to get high. You know? we, are just, supposed we, to. we are getting high, but, but, it, but it happens because of contact. Yeah. Whereas what addictive behavior does is it is it and it's the same. So what you've done is is fill in the gap for me because like that the, the 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 foraging as contact uh, and and the reward system there is happening because of an interaction with 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 the plants and the place. And I haven't quite got that. Whereas whereas I had thought a lot about that rat experiment and thought, well, you know, this is this is it. You know, we're substituting just the buzz that we get off oxytocin off of what I hadn't thought about dopamine, you know, for something. And then the other, the other thing that, that's to me so prevalent now is shopping and then uh, surfing the internet. It's terrible, yeah. absolutely terrible, because you get a buzz because you found this buzz because you found that buzz because and, and YouTube just queues them up and, you, yeah. and you're staring at these ones that are queuing up while you're watching this one that you're excited you found. Ah, it's, I mean, it's, I can't, I can't handle those drugs I, I i don't i don't have the internet in my house and i don't have a smartphone because to me i'm still well, far too susceptible to that shit yeah i'm really susceptible to it too and I, I find it incredibly useful um i do a lot of study online so it's really difficult to kind of separate myself as much as you have but i think you're absolutely spot on and it's something i'm looking at doing too because yeah that, i think that's it i think i think in this conversation we potentially nailed it you know, it's not just about the relationship between, like with the rats, it was the relationship, the social relationship to the other rats. Um, 
And it didn't stop them being addicted. It just made them addicted to what they were supposed to be addicted to. Yeah. Because the addiction is actually a natural impulse that's become subverted. And it's a life-affirming impulse that has been subverted. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I think I've I've got this phrase I came up with. I I haven't actually presented this talk yet, but I've got a title to a talk. It just sounds a bit risky, so I haven't had the guts to do it. But it's from it's from bondage from bondage to bonding. You know, that's that's, you see. So so you know those because they're all linkages. That the the addictive linkages are bondage. Yeah, we are not free, uh, and and and. And, and, and we're tied to something that isn't actually feeding us. Whereas, yeah. whereas the bonds are linkages. They're the ties that bind. They're the fabric of life, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and they are feeding us. You know? yeah. so, and, and this is the thing. The machine has got us like we are now like cyborgs that big parts of our functionality is, is connected in these mechanical ways without the sensitivity of the semi-permeable membranes. And this is bad shit. You know, this is, this is, we're, we're in chains. These are, these linkages are chains. Whereas the bonds are beautiful connections like that mycelium under the ground that you described so wonderfully. Yeah. You know, it's bonds or bondage, I think. His, his, I do, what you just said is, is really beautiful. It really is. The, um, the primal, urge behind what i was trying to say was the primal urge behind the addiction is the thing that's been so yeah. not yeah. that addiction is a good thing yeah that, the urge oh no i know what you're saying yeah 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 yeah, yeah. here's something i want I, I can say that i mean some of the people listening to this are going to go what the hell is he talking about but one of the things i've studied quite a lot in the past was the tarot okay so we're way off the topic of science and way off foraging here okay but if you want to put it in do there are two cards in a tarot deck, um, in a traditional rider weight tarot deck, the one that you see in all the movies, you know, that used for fortune telling. And the two cards, one is the lovers and one is the devil. And the devil represents bondage, okay? So you have this devil figure in the middle with chains coming off of it. And you have a, a man and a woman chained to usually, you know, his feet or whatever it is. And then in the lover's card, you you have a, a symbol in the middle signifying or a, a being signifying love. It could be a cherub or whatever it is. And you have two people, a man and a woman, who represent love. And it's not necessarily a representation of love between two people, but it's representing a virtuous connection. Yeah. And if you superimpose those two cards from the Rider Waite Tarot deck, the outlines of the whole thing, they, they just match. The one superimposes on the other exactly. And I think there's a, there was a designed to be a hidden message when that deck was created, which was that the only difference between the devil or bondage and the lovers or bonding was that one was a virtuous relationship and one was a harmful relationship. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, straight over the top of each other you, if you put them side by side it's quite remarkable how similar they are yeah um, and i think that just sums up exactly what you just said so thank you because that's just great oh you're welcome you're welcome um so the, the other thing i want to just say just just in connection to to dopamine because if i could say, I, I wish i could quote the guy but 
Um, perhaps we'll put it on the uh, links. I'll look it up and, and put it on the links for this podcast. But there's a guy that's basically uh, talking a lot about sugar and, and industrial food, but mainly sugar. Um, and he republished some book from the 80s, which at the time everybody was saying this guy's uh, – uh, I can't remember either name. The guy from the the 80s or, or this this guy – but anyway, they were they were basically looking at sugar as as this highly destructive thing, this oh. highly addictive thing, and of course it fits with all of the things we're saying because, you know, sugar is something that occurs in complex foods, um, or even in the case of honey, it's got these other complex plant compounds, and yeah. you just don't get too much of it or whatever. So it's 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 the it's the complexity of of life being reduced yet again into one thing when we eat sugar all the time. And this guy's done all of this work around um, sugar and, and addictive behavior around food. And he characterized it as, as a dopamine-fueled scenario Yeah. when people are addicted to, 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 um, to terrible food. Um, but he also uh, – he, he basically had the sort of good guy and the bad guy neurochemically, which is why I was a bit stuck on dopamine being – categorically the bad guy even though i know mm -hmm. it, it's it's part of us so it, it must be the, the the true story the real with the real dopamine please come out yeah. and all of yeah. that so so uh but he was saying it's dopamine and serotonin and the way he characterized it was um you know dopamine is this reward seeking behavior and and if that if that gets a grip then what we have is this addictive thing where, where things things are obviously very uh negative and destructive um, but with serotonin, um, I don't know, perhaps it has a shadow side, but, but what he drew out with serotonin was that it's all the slow and steady stuff. You know, mm -hmm. we have serotonin when we just get some physical exercise. Well, obviously traditionally, nobody did this bizarre behavior mm -hmm. of going for a run or going to the gym or any of that stuff or even yoga, you know, they just, they just, they were just alive in their surroundings and in order to be alive you have to be active and and so you got serotonin as a result of the physical activity you had to just get the stuff you needed and do the stuff you needed to do and then the other one is 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 the relational context that serotonin is released by by um in in relational contexts and obviously dopamine is too as you say you know and, and we can crack on and and have dopamine in in terms of some of the insights we have in this conversation. I'm sure yeah. that it's rewarding that we're going, oh, yeah, I see that, um, and so on, as we're listening and, and going back and forth. But but the slow and steady thing in, in relationships where we see people every day and we do the hard work of putting up with people when they're A, boring, B, annoying, C, won't do what we want them to do. <laughs> we, we, we go, whatever the EFG and to Z, all of that is, but, 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 but you know, we just put up with each other and, and go the distance. And we have that reward of the steady, consistent presence. And, 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 and so he, he was just unwinding all that to show the serotonin comes through the slow and steady mm -hmm. non-reward-seeking uh, behavior or, or delayed gratification. Um, so, yeah, uh, that's, that's the other side of that. Um, I think it's part of the balance, isn't it? So yeah. when serotonin levels are higher, people are more able to... Um, deal with more complex emotions and they're better at delaying gratification right they're, they're, in, they're less likely to sort of um 
you know, just react like that and snap at you because they'll think about what you've said and maybe think, well, actually, now's not, not the moment. You know, the presence of serotonin allows more activity to go on in the cerebellum and it's not quite so focused on the, the sort of more primitive brainstem and, you know, more central areas of the brain. Um, but there's also melatonin to take into account as well, which is the kind of recharge, reset, relax mechanism. And I think there's probably a balance between all of these, you know, that needs to be got right. Um, and I think if any one of them is out of whack, it causes causes the others to go out of whack as well. But I suspect there are many more factors. It's probably way more complex than we even currently understand, um, you know. Well, it's one of the it's I guess it's one of the weird things that we even have to think about this. But I guess, you know, they, they say if it's not broken, don't fix it. Well, it's broken, baby. So yeah, yeah. We're having to think about it. We're having to think about how could we, you know, you know, what is my particular level of dysfunctionality? What is my particular malaise? You know, and then when we bring these sort of things into play, that like we have neurochemicals which have these kind of functionality, we think, well, okay. I can see that. So at that point, we have to start thinking, well, how could we invoke more melatonin or, or whatever by deliberately putting ourselves in situations? You know, obviously, if, if, if it wasn't broken, we wouldn't need to even have this kind of change of thought. We wouldn't be thinking about it in the first place. I think it's really interesting that we're, and I'm talking to you via a little screen. Um, it's called a tablet. Okay. Yeah. That, that, you know, is one of the sources of this um, sort of dopamine stimulating addictive behavior that we're talking about it's coming to me via a tablet yeah aptly named and that tablet is also giving out quite a lot of blue light and um you know many people out there will have already heard of this but if you guys if you're out there using a tablet or a mobile phone to access content online um it's a good idea to either have an app that puts a kind of a blue light filter across the screen um, or just don't use it late in the evening because our eyes are um, amazing organs, right? They have obviously the optic nerve that goes into the optical centers of the brain, but also there is another nerve, nerve pathway from the retina that is solely designed to register the amount of blue light. And that nerve pathway is responsible to the amount of ambient blue light that's out there in daylight, okay? So as the daylight levels start to fade later in the day, it senses that the rate of blue light fading has reached a certain point that triggers the release of melatonin. I believe, I'm not, not a neurochemist, but I believe it's the conversion of serotonin to melatonin. Yeah. So it changes the balance of serotonin and melatonin. And at a certain point in the day, I used to do this with people. Um, I worked on a mental health project for a while. We're taking people out in the woods and doing conservation. And I taught them to notice that point in the day when they suddenly felt as if, oh, you know what? I just want to stop and have a cup of tea. Just feeling that little bit slightly more, less animated than I was. And that's called the dim light melatonin onset. Okay. Or Dilimo for short. Sure. So I'd get everyone out there to shout Dilimo when they felt it. <laughs> Depending on the time of year, it would normally happen, you know, in, in the spring, it's sort of happening around about maybe 4.35 p.m., something like that. You know, they're just starting to just want to stop. There's this natural urge to want to retreat, you know, start packing up, have a cuppa, think about going home. Now, as 
we get more and more locked into screen reality, this natural cycle is not only getting distorted, but we're losing touch with it. We're actually not sensing it anymore, I think. Wow. Um, and I think that's really, really important. So these screens are literally emitting blue light of a frequency that prevents the dim light melatonin onset, which senses the reduction in the blue part of the spectrum in daylight, preventing that from kicking in and preventing our serotonin melatonin cycle from working properly. And it leads to sleep disturbances and anxiety and all, all kinds of strange neurochemical effects. So, um, you know, the, the idea of not using these kinds of screens late in the day is a really good one. But you can get an app on Android phones. They have a, some of them now have, a, I don't know if they do, do on Apple phones, they have a, a blue light filter mm. that you can turn on. So it's inbuilt in There you go, attached it's inbuilt into the iPad as well. So you set the time on it. Set the time and it will come on. So okay. that they are aware of it. I mean, you know, the, the likes of the the uh, you know the multi-million or billionaires at the heads of these huge IT corporations that produce these things are apparently themselves not very keen on having unlimited internet access and lots of screens in their homes. Well, do you know what the uh, the people who run uh, big sort of heroin smuggling operations probably don't shoot up a lot of heroin either. Don't either. No, exactly. Yeah. We'll leave that one there, I think, and uh, <laughs> yeah, it's good enough. I think just I just want to say that green light, the light you get in mm. the forest canopy, is incredibly healing. You can just feel it. I want to throw that one out there. But please, please, everybody, go and get some green light every day if you can manage it. So is that is that Fred giving everybody a green light to get some green light? Yeah. So it's probably not a coincidence that green light is green light, really, if you think about it. That's yeah, it. That's <laughs> yeah, I'm only half joking. I think. Yeah. You probably see that the green is saying, "Yeah, go. You can, you can approach. You can move." Yeah. Yeah. Um, what I was going to say, just just um, going back to feedback mechanisms, and what you said was really really interesting. Around, um, you know, you were you were talking about these sort of gatekeepers on our skin and in our gut which is also our skin mm. um and to do with them testing the food and then saying yeah this is good stuff um and i wanted to sort of emphasize that this is good stuff thing because there's there's a um there's a guy uh called provenza who we've done several a couple of podcasts with um and he he has developed a whole train of thought about nutritional wisdom, but it all it all hangs around, hinges around the idea of uh, what he calls flavor feedback mechanisms. Okay. Yeah, I just wondered wondered how that would interact with this. So it's spent a lot of time thinking about it. He he, he basically came out with this statement which caught me, absolutely hooked me in, because I knew there was something really deep and profound, even though I didn't understand it on first hearing. It was uh, it was palates connect animals with landscapes through flavor feedback mechanisms. Okay. That was the statement. And so he's talking about animals having the ability to um, taste the compounds within plants and then therefore register, this is good stuff. So he's saying there that the palate is not just on your tongue, but it's in every part of your body. It's, 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 uh, it's mm. at the point of delivery, as well as many other places, in your gut, on your heart, 
or the point of delivery in the particular tissue or, or, or organ that that compound goes to. At every point, your body is basically going yum or something like that. This is good yeah. stuff. But the point is that the feedback that comes from that creates a situation in which you can have an appetite now for that thing. Whereas until you encountered it and your body was able to check it out and come up with a, yeah, that's good stuff. Mm-hmm. You couldn't have an appetite for that thing. You could know something was missing, but you would not be able to seek it out in your environment. So he, yeah. he paints this picture of grazing animals because they are exposed from the womb through to birth, breast milk, and then the grazing behavior of the herd exposed to this is where you get that thing that makes you feel good when you eat it that there's a feedback mechanism thing going i just wondered how it it that could sort of become a richer picture in light of what you were saying earlier i'm loving this actually where this is taking my mind anyway um so i know that uh in recent years there was the discovery that we have taste receptors um in all kinds of parts of our body in places where nobody expected. I mean, even in the testes in blokes, you know, we've got taste receptors. So um, that's that's quite bizarre. And it does seem to tally, really, with what you're saying, that, you know, that, that this whole receptivity based around flavour is actually, flavour is a signal. Mm. Yeah. We just think of flavour of, of, as, you know, is it strawberry or is it vanilla? But no, it's a signal. And it's a signal that we use in all kinds of modalities throughout our whole organism. And it does make me wonder whether, for example, um, you know, with things like allergies, like asthma, there are certain types of asthma, not all asthma, um, that can be triggered by the knowledge that something is there, is there. So it can be that the presence of something that somebody can smell can trigger the asthma. And it's actually been, I believe, shown in some cases that it is, it is the smell itself that triggers the asthmatic response. And for a while, people thought that, oh, you, there was this whole train of thought of, oh, it's all in people's minds then, which is the biggest load of nonsense. Nothing is all in your mind, not in anyone, not in anyone. It's not all in your mind. Your body is your mind, mm-hmm. okay? It's all one thing. They're not separate. Um, but that really tallies, doesn't it, with the immune idea? Because, you know, um, an asthmatic response can be an immune response. But if you've got a particular taste is is perhaps um it's the right word but it should be viewed in a slightly broader context if you've got particular taste or a flavor that is providing a neurological signal first of all a chemical signal then a neurological signal and if that is partnered at the same time with something that causes an allergic response then i would have thought forevermore we're gonna you you sort of program yourself that every time you receive that signal you're also gonna rewire that response does that make sense because it, again, it's just another feedback loop. It's it's just another signalling loop. But that's a signalling loop gone wrong, though, isn't it? With with yeah, with allergies and so on. Yes, it is. But it's 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 going back to our original dopamine hypothesis or whatever. It's something that is designed to work in the right way, but has somehow or other it's become corrupted to work in the wrong way. Mm. Um, you know, the initial mechanism is a good one, but sometimes it gets broken. Yeah, so that's the feedback gone wrong. Well, that's an interesting. Yeah, I think there's, I think there's a whole bunch of stuff to. Uh, yeah, I feel like that's a whole bundle of things to explore. <laughs> it's a whole, yeah, for sure. We'll maybe go away and think about that for a year and have another chat about um, allergies. I'd love to. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, in terms of how does that fit into people's relationship with with food and in particular wild food? Because like we were saying, you know, the, the body has to have lots of systems in place um, in order to ensure that it gets a really diverse range of good nutrition. Yeah, yeah. Really the primary impulse behind all of this. Um, and something goes wrong when any one of those feedback mechanisms gets broken. Something goes spinning off out of kilter. Um, so all I can say is, although I don't think any of us probably, and I certainly don't understand the complexity of all of these feedback mechanisms, the one thing that ought to do the most to reset them would be to actually go back to source, go back to the original relationship of actually taking your hands foraging for something smelling it feeling its yeah. texture you know you then taste it and put it in your mouth and you have a direct knowing that of where the thing came from and that the thing that you're tasting is not only that organism but it's the sum of that organism and all of the other microbes that live within it and the soil that it drew its nutrients from and all of the rest of it and completely creating or recreating that entire loop from scratch um, I'd like to just quickly tell you the story of Mr. Brown, if that's OK. Years, a number of years ago, I did a, a stint working on a project on a farm um, and the place was set up for people with severe autism. And there was a chap called Mr. Brown. Um, he was a man in his late 30s and he required constant care. So, he, you know, he couldn't change his own clothes, um, couldn't speak needed help with feeding in the conventional way if you were to sit down and eat a plate of food. But when we went for a walk out on the farm um, and he had his, his you know, permanent full-time carers with him, when we went for a walk, he would literally bound around like a gazelle. He didn't walk, he leapt, he leapt through the air, sprang from step to step. And when he found a plant that called to him, he would stop and bend over and examine it and he would always put a bit of it in his mouth and chew it and then he would either spit it out or he'd swallow it and every time this happened his carers completely freaked out you know they're like get it out of your mouth you know wash your mouth out it could be poison and all the rest of it but this guy had been doing this for 38 years and not once had he made himself sick mm -hmm. ever now by the law of probability if anyone was just randomly consuming plants out of the hedgerow and it was a random event, after 38 years, they would have at the very least seriously poisoned themselves and probably not be there. OK, I mean, there are plenty of things out there. If he'd have just shoved a load of hemlock water dropper in his mouth and swallowed it, he probably would have only been around for half an hour, an hour or something. I don't know. But um, he'd never once harmed himself. You know, so one assumes that or I assume that his innate animal instinctual sense of how to sense, you know, through through the mucous membranes and through the nerves and his lips and through smell and everything else was so highly attuned. But what he was doing was sampling things and just going, yeah, OK, that's fine. Um, no, that's not fine. And he used to just he used to spit three times, you know, um, and then just move on and off to the next thing. But he would just feed himself all day long from the hedgerows. Uh, the you know chagrin of um, the people looking after him who were absolutely terrified that he was going to go and top himself and they'd all get sued. So 
there's something in there. Mr. Brown, I think, taught me a big lesson that there is some innate principle that can be trusted. Yeah. Uh, that people cannot go, okay, well, I think I'm in, just in tune with nature. I'll be fine. I'll just go and eat whatever I want. Because, uh, guys, if there's anyone out there is, who thinks that and you're listening, you're probably going to die if you do that. Okay. I'm telling you that there is a principle out there that I believe is there. It's powerful. It can be tuned into and it can guide you. But the difference between us and Mr. Brown is that Mr. Brown was way, way more in tune with his instinct yeah. than any non-autistic person I have ever met. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I've, I've, I've met someone who is a very dear friend, actually. I wouldn't dream of saying who it was, but uh, but not from the UK. and came, came to the UK, deep plant knowledge, deep relationship with land and so on. But... Unfortunately, he he, uh, he was eating um, ground soil, which, as you know, mm-hmm. has, has uh, liver-damaging alkaloids in it, and told me that the plant had told him it was good salad. Oh, dear. I'm like, okay, I can't deny that there's some possible sphere that you could enter into, like Mr. Brown does, yeah, mm-hmm. where you would know that and it would be accurate. But mm. you're wrong about that. Yeah. <laughs> this is a poisonous plant. The plant did not tell you that. That exactly. was some spooky zone in your head, and and this wasn't a fluffy hippie either. It was, but yeah, you know, he was wrong about that. So yeah, it, it, it's a dangerous space to try and step into. Best it's to not best one to, to experiment of, with. Not one to experiment with. You're better off just learning your plant ID and the things, and then maybe explore some subtle nuances that aren't quite so dangerous with your uh, with your. I, I completely agree. Yeah. Um, you know, our relationship with the natural world on that intuitive level is pretty damaged. So we need to learn to trust it more. That's really important. But at the point when you put something in your mouth and swallow it, you are 100% committed. And yeah. to be honest, you need to be 110% sure of its identification and also what it can do to you before you go that far. Um, because, you know, otherwise the potential is one of natural selection. You're going to get selected out, basically. Yeah. All the people that tell me they're too scared to forage, I always say this is a great start. This is an excellent start. Being too scared to forage is the best possible way to start because you're going to be careful now. But but there's just one other story I'd like to just maybe round things off with because it's an unanswered question uh, other than that this is an example of something instinctual like Mr. Brown. Mm -hmm. But I met a chap in uh, Brazil. Uh, and he's, we were sitting opposite. He said, well, what do you do? And me and my mate said, well, we're foragers. And that's great. He said, I need to talk to you about something. Oh, really? He says, yes, I'm a primatologist. I work with, uh, with um, mainly a species called tamarins in the Amazon. And we've okay. had to relocate some tamarins because of, uh, you know, the forest was going to be felled. And we at least had the chance to get the animals out and move them to a suitable habitat. So we took these tamarins and we took them to another habitat in which there were plants growing, which we know because it's my particular interest to mm. study the diet of the tamarind. Mm-hmm. There are plants here that not only don't occur where they came from, but nothing like them occurs where they came from. So they've had zero exposure. We yeah. opened the cage. The tamarind came out, walked straight up to this plant, grabbed the leaf without hesitation, put it in their mouth, ate it and carried on. Wow. So that wow. was an example of absolute direct. There wasn't even any reflection going on. And and I, I I actually raised this with um, with uh, Mr. Provenza mm-hmm. um, 
it may be that I didn't understand the subtlety of what 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 he said, but I feel that this was something that even with all the experience he had, he he couldn't he couldn't quite furnish us with a with yeah. an explanation. So, you know, because all of his stuff is mainly based around the flavor feedback and and the and the stuff. Whereas this, none of that was involved. It was mm-hmm. direct. They knew this plant was good, and they were right. That's that really interesting. That's so interesting. Phenomenal. Ancestral knowledge. Who knows? Yeah. Cellular, maybe cell. Yeah, cellular based. But no but way. they but they didn't do it. The, 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 just to qualify it, they were offered bananas. Yeah. And they didn't they didn't know about bananas. Okay. Later on, they learned to eat bananas. This leaf they knew about. Hmm. They they passed the bananas by and went straight to the leaf on this tree. See, so. We've all, we've all got to remember something, you know, that millions of years ago we didn't just we didn't just arrive, you know, we didn't just sort of pop up and go, "Bing, I'm the first human." We evolved from a microbial soup. Yeah, yeah. So we've gone through millions. In fact, we've gone through a couple of billions of years worth of evolution, through which we've been many different kinds of organisms, and we've co-evolved with yep. the things that we used as nutrition. Yep. We didn't discover them. We grew with them, within them, around them, and co-evolved with them. Yep. And yep. so there must be some types of knowing that originate from that, I, I believe anyway, from that really primal stratum of our existence. Yep. Um, that could well be an example of one of them. I just had another very brief thought of something I'd like to say. Um, you know, one of the things I recently discovered through being a student is that, and this is just a bit of a tangent, but in, with this um, virus going around, I think I'd like to tell the world, and it's about food, is that our neutrophils, which are, you know, possibly our most numerous white blood cells and are at the front line of our innate immune system, the, these cells go, they, they literally start off in our bloodstream and they go through the the walls of the blood vessels and actually migrate to sites of inflammation where infection is occurring and they're able to um, to phage um, cells that are you know infected with a virus so they actually one are one of the very very first responses and because they're so numerous they go on mass to the site of an infection in our bodies but the receptors on them and the receptors that bind to substances called chemokines that actually set off this reaction, okay, are, or maybe it's not those receptors, actually, it might be a different receptor on on the cell surface, I don't know. The receptors bind to sugars in the bloodstream. And um, there have been some studies that have shown that the concentration of refined sugars, whether it's sucrose, glucose, or fructose, but raw sugars, you know, in a, in a sort of non-complex state in the bloodstream, the levels of those sugars affects those neutrophil cells. It actually dopes them and stops right. responding to the presence of a threat. Okay, right. so the very front line of our immune system, the very first kind of response from the innate immune system, this is not the learned response. This is the one that just re- recognizes patterns of things that are, that are non-human and out of kilter and goes to the site and deals with them, that more primitive part of our immune system is the first response or the innate response. And, and the very first part of it is the triggering of neutrophils to go to the site where, you know, where things have been breached. And if the neutrophils in the blood have been doped with sugar in the blood, they don't respond properly. So I just want everyone to ponder on that. There's a really um, quite an infectious virus going on at the moment in this world that 
hopefully one day we'll listen to this podcast and it will be a long time ago, but who knows? And um, it may well be just from this one bit of basic biology teaching that I've received, uh, it may be that the neutrophils themselves can be affected by our consumption of refined sugars. And perhaps for those listening out there, guys, it might be an idea at the moment with this threat going on to keep your sugar consumption down to really quite a low level in order that your frontline uh, defences from your immune system can be mobilised quicker. There you go. Well, that sounds like a very helpful piece of advice. And it's certainly uh, no downside to that. Cut down on your sugar. Well, yeah. yeah. Win-win, probably, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, Fred, well, it's been smashing to talk to you. Yeah. You too. Really enjoyed it, actually. We should do it more often. Yeah, yeah, we should. Okay, well, thanks for listening to this week's Worldwide Podcast. And since this conversation, I've had a chance to look up uh, something that, that I referred to and couldn't remember the name of. So there's, um, there's a book called Pure, White and Deadly, that's by a guy called John Yudkin, so you can look that up. Um, but it was it was uh, published in the seventies, but republished with um, a foreword by a guy called Robert Lustig, and he's a pretty interesting guy too. He's written a book called "The Hacking of the American Mind: The Science Behind the Corporate Takeover of Our Bodies and Brains." So that's highly relevant to um, the conversation we've just had. Um, and in fact, we've put a video on the podcast page, a link on the podcast page. Um, to where he's basically expounding the main ideas in that in that book, and there's a lot of reference to um, dopamine and serotonin systems, and indeed, um, you know, people basically going after that that pursuit of the distorted appetite that I referred to in the um, introduction. So those those are good things to to, to follow up if if, if you want to uh, explore some of these ideas in a bit more depth. And now to get to the weekly bit about plants. So there's a couple of things I would suggest you look out for this week. One is just coming into season and the other is, has gone out of season, but it's a great time to spot it. So I'll start with the latter. So I mentioned lamb's lettuce a few weeks ago as being this amazing winter hardy salad. But I have to say the first time we found lamb's lettuce, um, actually it's a great story, so I'll tell it. Um, and forgive me if I've told it before. I, I sometimes forget what I've said on the podcast, but it's worth worth retelling if I have. We we were on this sort of quest for lamb's lettuce when, when Ali and I were first um, discovering some of the wild plants. We were in Cornwall, armed with Carluccio's Carluccio Goes Wild book, which was kind of our Bible at the time for learning just a few wild edibles and, and really delicious recipes to yeah, make them palatable to serve up on the table. So yeah, I'd highly recommend that book if, you, if, you, if you're just getting started for just basic recipes that really work. Anyway, we'd been scouring everywhere in the vicinity of um, Ali's parents in Cornwall where we were trying to find lamb's lettuce. Every walk I was looking everywhere and not finding it and then just the day before we the day we were just about to leave i went out for one last look and found this plant growing at the base of a wall just outside the house next door and i recognized it as as lamb's lettuce based on the leaves but the thing is it, it had it had basically gone to seed so that it made it a lot easier to spot you know i was, I was able to, to take the leaf they're the right shape but slightly uh smaller that's what happens when the when the plant goes to flower and goes to seed but the reason I know it was seed and not flower is because I gathered the seeds and also because I had my eye in for what the plant looked like at that point, I gathered a lot more seeds on the way out through various villages. We spotted it again at the base of the wall in, in lots of the villages, of walls of houses uh, as we drove past on the way back. So by the time we got home, we had a bag full of these 
lamb's lettuce plants with with seeds ready to scatter in our vicinity. So I thought, well, you know, we'll get this growing near us. I hope. Well, the next morning I went out to scatter the seeds in similar habitats, just just on this little housing estate where we were living. See if we could get it growing up from the bases of of, of walls there, um, and on just little scratchy little rough bits of ground there. And um, one of my neighbours sort of stopped me and asked me what I was up to. And I showed her the plant and said, um, I'm scattering these seeds trying to get it to grow. And she said, oh, oh, well, you needn't bother. Come and come and follow me. And she took me to her back garden where there was an absolute forest of this uh, lamb's lettuce. And uh, while we were still living in that place, I several times went and, and picked lamb's lettuce. I've never actually seen lamb's lettuce growing in quite such abundance anywhere since then. It, it, it was just an absolute carpet of it. Um, and of course, it gave us this uh, very, very kind of introductory lesson, which continues to be one of the central points to be made about foraging, which is that what you have is uh, within reach. It's, it's, in fact, it's probably pretty much right on your doorstep. So we, we felt we'd kind of been made monkeys out of to, to come back with our, our uh, horde of lamb's lettuce seeds, hoping to uh, propagate them in Kent uh, completely needlessly, needlessly because they're the lamb's lettuce, lamb's lettuce have been all the time. Um, so that's that's the thing that's gone out of season. But if you, um, I, I mean, I can't, it looks a little like uh, forget-me-not, the flowers. They're, they're paler, but they're slightly sort of grayish, almost seemingly a little bit lilac. Although if you go up close, they look, they look kind of more white, but but they do look a bit like forget-me-not. But in, in, in all uh, sort of realism, uh, anyone listening to this can can uh, just go and look up on the internet for images of lamb's lettuce in flower or gone to seed. And that's what you're going to find just now. And, and it's, it, it's, it's a lot more easy to spot, really, than the little leaves that you'll find when, when it's, when it's um, more edible, at a more edible stage. And this is actually a thing that is uh, worth bearing in mind across the board. Now, whether we're talking about nettles or, or, or lamb's lettuce, or something like rosebay willow herb, or even Japanese knotweed. Um, these plants leave skeletons once they've finished growing, uh, which which make them very visible. An even more salient point to be made right now is is that flowers have a similar effect of attracting attention from from further away. So if you if you want to find just a little leaf, you have to be right close up and looking in exactly the right spot, which you may not. Um, whereas these tall um, skeletons of a plant or the plant um, in its flowering stage are just much more visible from a distance and they can enable you to to home in on um, on a patch of something. For example, dandelions just now, um, although some of them have already gone to seed, but a lot, of, a lot of dandelion plants are still with their bright yellow flower heads. And that means you can really scope out your neighborhood and find out where the dandelions are and uh, either write it down or you've got a really good memory, just bear it in mind or photograph it or even get a GPS thing on it because that means you can go back year round and, and you'll be able to find these leaves. So just getting to the thing that's coming into season, fat hen and closely related plants uh, like spear-leaved orach, all of which are in the spinach family or the goosefoot family um, and closely related to uh, quinoa and samphire and beetroot, in fact, as well as spinach, obviously. Um, these plants are just coming into season now with just little seedlings, which are so small and delicate, but absolutely delicious in salads. So again, if you, if you, want, to, if you want to know what they look like, if, if you've ever grown quinoa, well, fat hen looks almost identical to quinoa, but these are small plants and they're growing, again, you might find them growing at the base of the wall somewhere, just in, in sort of 
rough ground, or if you're lucky enough to have a garden that that's got disturbed ground there, you're going to find um, little bits of fat hen and even on arable farmland. So it's really delicious in salads. When it's when it's um, more mature, you, you're more likely to cook that down as, as greens. Uh, and then later in the year, you can even harvest the seeds and they're like a miniature quinoa. But just now, look out for fat hen and wild orange, um, and they can be used in salads. So as ever, do look at the www.forager.org.uk forward slash podcast page to get all the notes that we've put with this and, and, and links and so on. And check out Fred. We'll, we'll be putting some um, details up of you know Fred's website and, and, and various other bits and bobs that will allow you to um, explore a bit more of his work. Okay, well, that's it. And uh, thanks again for listening to this week's World Wild Podcast. Seeing you after so long, girl And with the way you look I understand that you were not impressed But I heard you let that little friend of mine Take off your party dress I'm not gonna get too sentimental Like those other stickers This world